From the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know, and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford University, and I am with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who is the Dean of the Graduate School of Education. Dr. Denise Paradox Pope. Ooh, Uh, why paradox? Well, because we're going to be talking about immigration in schools. But I was thinking, trying to think more broadly about kind of a paradox that faces all of education. Okay. So this, 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 this may be too highfalutin. But, you know, <laughs> when it, as a faculty member, I was a pretty good theorist, right? Yes. And, but as dean, it's sort of a different kind of theorizing. So I've been trying to get better at it to try and find the right way. Because, you know, you're sort of pitching an institution. So, so here I think is a tension or a paradox that I, I don't know a resolution to. Okay. And it is that on the one hand, education has to embrace variability, right? We take, we take everyone, we respect everyone, biology, social, historical, racial, ethnic. We embrace the variability. At the same time, education has the task of reducing variability, right? We're trying to make everybody uh, proficient, or we're trying to get them to speak a certain way. And I think this, this tension is irresolvable. And so, say 30 years ago, the solution to, what, to it was we embrace all variability, but then we assimilate them to a single, a yeah. single goal. Everybody leaves the same. With, right, which of course uh, does damage the variability that you're embracing. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, the number of things where I was starting to think about issues within education where this plays out, this, this tension, and then you see lots of arguments right at the interface of this where you're trying to decide, uh, should, should I uh, allow all beliefs, all attitudes, because this is what they're bringing, or should I bring it down so that everybody is kind of same on certain dimensions? Mm-hmm. No, it's tricky, and I think, um, so I talk about this in my curriculum class a little bit. First of all, it's a brilliant way how, how you just um, Thank you. Write that down. Yes. Thank you. Kudos to you, Dan. Thank you. Kudos. Um, so in my curriculum class, it comes down to um, sort of by community or by region or by district, and they get to decide, or by state. Like, you know, what Texas puts in their textbooks um, is different from what California puts in their textbooks. But unfortunately, a little state like Maine doesn't have enough money to produce their own textbooks, let's say. So they're kind of stuck with either choosing the California one or choosing the Texas one. And so when you think about variability, yes, it's there. But as you decide what you're actually going, how you teach and what you teach, which is very controversial as we think about variability and what people believe, um, some of the smaller markets kind of get squeezed out. And they're forced uh, to forced to do the you know uh, homogeneity so they, they, of the. Yeah, they of can't the, they the, can't embrace their own variability. They they can't. I mean, it, it's difficult. It's yeah. difficult. And then you have you know statewide testing and federal tests, right. and I mean, so it is hard to just say, okay, we'll let the different communities decide, and everyone will be happy. It doesn't quite work that way. No, and and so I think that's a good example. I think it shows up in other ones. I'm, I'm teaching a classroom. I should uh, respect all the student voices, uh, but you know uh, there may be one way that society expects out of it, and very hard to do that while also respecting the voices. Right. And so how do how do you make it culturally relevant, or do you make it culturally sustaining? In right. which case, you're sort of maintaining the variability. 
of then, all the different, you mean like- Yeah, it, but then it, it becomes very difficult. So if you've got a classroom with like 37 languages spoken, which is not unusual. 37? 37, like- you, how, how big is this class? This, well, there, okay, there, I should say there, a school. There's, there's I should kids say a school. who speak sorry. like four languages. <laughs> okay, sorry, I should say a school, not a classroom. But that, that you know, is everyone supposed to learn English and everyone's supposed to write in English? And, and what do we do with all their different beliefs and religions and ethnicities? It's, it's tough. So I think we're still trying to sort this out. I, again, you know, 30 years ago, it was, we'll assimilate them to the dominant ways of seeing the world. I don't think that plays anymore. I right. don't, you know, I'm not going to take an ideological stand, but it's just, that's not the way we do it anymore. I'm not sure we figured out another way so that we don't keep getting these kind of battles right at the intersection of the, these two forces. Good thing we have our expert here with we us. We do, we do. So uh, who's going to help us understand how this actually does happen. So today we're, get, we're, we're very lucky to be speaking with sociology professor Tomasi Manas at Stanford. And so his research and writing focuses on immigration, assimilation, and social mobility. So thank you for coming here to clarify the <laughs> fundamental paradox of education for us. Absolutely. I, I, we should be able to do this in a couple minutes, yeah. actually. No, no pressure. <laughs> Not, just, at all. Right? Not at all. Snap easy, your fingers. Easy topic. Easy. Uh, the, the answer <clears throat> is 12. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so uh, let, me, let me get people oriented to what you're going to bring. So uh, you did a study about Cupertino, which is a mm-hmm. town just outside of Stanford, uh, well-known for Apple. And the... Uh, immigrant impact on the schools there. And so you wrote a book called The Other Side of Assimilation, How Immigrants Are Changing American Life. So so tell us what you found there, uh, particularly if you can, about kind of how the immigrants had an effect on the schools as opposed to how the schools shaped the immigrants. Sure. Well, let, let, And I know oh, you did sure, more than did. just Cupertino, yeah. so I just want to clarify that, right? Okay. East Palo Alto, Cupertino, a, a bunch of places. Yeah, so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, Go. Put, put, some, uh, put a foundation on this, or under it, I should say. Um, so what I was trying to do in, in the book and, and even before the book with the study was try to understand how established populations in a place adjust when lots of immigrants show up. The, the traditional view of assimilation it going back 100 years, and this is a colloquial view, this is an academic view, is that immigrants land in a place and over time and across generations, they change and they become more like a host society. In the old days, it was the it was the monolithic whole society that you were referring to, Dan. Right, right? this right. kind of white middle class Protestant mainstream. And today, we think that the the there are many kinds of host societies. A host society that's divided in many ways by race and class. But the the dominant view is immigrants come here and they they become more like some version of the host society. And and sociologists have been saying that. All the while saying that immigration is changing everything. It's changing us demographically. It's changing the food we eat, the religions we practice, the music we listen to. It's changing our friendship networks. It's changing our schools. And and there's no way of understanding, at least there hasn't been, what that change means for the people who've been here for a long time, for people who don't trace their family roots to the most recent wave of immigrants. And so that's what I try to do. And I picked, as you mentioned, uh, a, a few different towns, one of which is Cupertino. And for those of for the listeners out there who don't know about Cupertino beyond Apple Computer, Cupertino uh, is an upper middle class city, even by Silicon Valley's heady standards. Uh, it's a place that in 1980 was about 90 percent white, and today is about 29 percent white. It's a magnet for high skilled immigrants. These are immigrants who come mostly from East Asia and South Asia. 
they're highly educated, they're engineers, they're in, many of them are CEOs, in fact. Uh, and, and I was really interested mostly in how the white population there is adjusting, but not just the white population, also a later generation Japanese and Chinese American group of people who have been there for a long time. And then I studied a couple of other cities that had very different race and class profiles. One of them is East Palo Alto. I was interested in the African American population that's been there for a while and how they were adjusting to the big influx of Latino immigrants. And then this middle class city on, in, in East San Jose, or middle class, I should say, neighborhood called Berryessa. Um, we can dive into Cupertino, though, because that's where I talk mostly about the schools if you want to go there now. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Tomas Jimenez, sociology professor at Stanford, talking about immigration and, and cities he studied that have uh, a high population of immigrants who have assimilated. Is that is that right? Well, they well they um, in in the in the case of this book, I'm really interested not so much in how immigrants or their children are assimilating, but actually how established folks, that is people who were born in the United States and whose parents were born in the United States. I'm interested in how they are, I, what I would argue, is assimilating to a place that's being changed by immigrants. Uh-huh. And so you, you go to Cupertino, and uh, I, I, along with a grad, former graduate student named Adam Horowitz, did a bunch of interviews and, and some observations in Cupertino, and we really picked Cupertino because of its class profile. We just wanted a place that um, had a was a magnet for high skilled immigrants, not because we thought there was anything particular going on there. And we started doing interviews with people. Um, these were these are white folks who's who were born in the United States. Their parents were born in the United States, and everybody was talking about education. They were talking a lot about schools, talking about schools as a reason why immigrants settle in Cupertino, but also talking about schools as a place where the way that we typically think about race kind of gets flipped on its head. And more particularly, what they were saying was that the white kids in the school were the dumb kids, that they were the kids who were more likely to need help, less likely to be in AP classes, more likely to play sports, dabble in drugs, drink on the weekend, get in trouble. And keep in mind, the the rendering of the kind of white middle class kids there would seem very much like the rendering of white middle class kids anywhere. It's just that what was happening in Cupertino, and I would argue still happening there, is that the influx and settlement of high-skilled immigrants had really changed the landscape, and education was paramount in flipping the the kind of racial categories on their head. I mean, typically, like if you read the education literature, the way that people talk about white kids is a lot like the way that some of the literature portrays black and Latino kids. So by this, it, it sounds more like the White kids didn't change. It's just now the backdrop against them showed, boy, that's a certain kind of behavior. There's this other kind of behavior that's available to you. That's right. Yeah, so, well, so I think but, that, that's part of the story. So so there's a change in perception. Right. But was there like a change in attitude towards, did anybody take actions in response to this? Did teachers experience like high tension because of this? Well, one thing that I, I can tell you, because this is actually my public school district. And so my neighbors, um, you know, will say things like, um, she got a B, that's like an Asian F. Right. So, so she said that. Yeah. She said the Asian F. She said that's like an Asian F. Um, She's Asian, (laughs) I should say, the person saying this. Right. So there's this sort of 
attitude at the schools that, 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 and whether it's right or wrong, and Tomas, you tell us, I mean, the Asian kids are working harder, they're getting better grades, there's this very sort of intensity, and the white kids are like, oh my gosh, this is kind of too intense and too crazy and too stressed out, and we're not even going to try to play this game. Is that? I think that nails it, Denise. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's right on. Um, and, and I think one of the things that surprised us is just how deep-seated this is. Um, so once we started kind of uncovering this finding, we started talking to teachers and school administrators, and they gave the exact same portrayal. And some of the teachers, even against their best efforts, against, against their own instincts, would say, you know, yeah, the grades I've given to Asian kids are probably better than the grades I've given to white kids. The white wow. kids are really struggling. And uh, so, so do they ever say to the Asian kids, you shouldn't work so hard? You should be more chill, be more American? Uh, well, probably they don't say be more American, but is, is there any attempt to to say you're bringing the wrong culture here? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so, so there is some pushback you, you, on it. Yeah, there is pushback. You you hear it from parents, um, and there's a, there's some pushback. And mind you, I did this research several years ago now, and and I confess I have not kept up with what's going on oh, in the schools. And Denise, there. maybe you can <laughs> fill in the fill in the gap. Um, but. Um, uh, Yes, there is pushback. It's mostly rhetorical, though. It's not parents marching in and demanding that the schools change or demanding that the the Asian immigrant population change. Uh, it is them kind of rhetorically trying to gain the high ground by saying, well, you know, they're pushing their kids, but at least our kids are we have a more relaxed attitude. We want to. We want a kind of more holistic. We have a more holistic approach to education, and that's the better approach. Knowing all the while that that their um, their kids are not on the top of the hierarchy, and in, in when it comes to achievement. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Tomas Jimenez, professor at Stanford here in sociology about uh, immigration and particularly what happens to the population when a, a whole group of, let's say, Asian uh, folks come in and, and, and they are now the majority in, in the city. Mm -hmm. So how, how do their cultures, I mean, I can tell you that um, there's, some, there's some wonderful things about this. We have incredible Asian food mm -hmm. uh, in Cupertino. We have um, really diverse neighborhoods. Um, and there is this sense that those kids, um, and again, it's a stereotype, but, but, but the Asian kids are more stressed out. Um, there is a much higher incident of um, sort of mental health issues and um, ulcers and that kind of stuff happening. And so it's like kind of be careful what you wish for, right, in that sense. Yeah, and I, I think there's a there's an important point to make here, which doesn't necessarily come directly from my research, but from some research that other sociologists have done on this very issue. And I'm thinking in particular here of Jennifer Lee and Minjo, who have examined Asian American achievement. And I, I think what we often attribute that achievement to culture, that there's something inherent in Indian culture or Chinese culture that, that makes uh, these immigrants and, and their children do well. And you'd have to, by extension, then conclude that immigrant groups that don't do so well in school have mm. somehow a deficient culture. And one of the things that Jennifer Lee and Minjo point out that, that I think is, um, is really helpful is to recognize that, that the population that is landing in places like Cupertino and other places in the United States 
they're a very highly selected population. They're the most educated people in the countries they come from. They're more educated than average Americans. They are what uh, what Lee and Joe call hyper-selected. Mm. <clears throat> and so what they're bringing, in essence, I think, is a class culture. Yeah. It's a culture that you would find among any ultra-high-achieving population, the kind of best of the best from any country. And when they land here... We read it that is the kind of established Americans, not as a class culture, but as an ethnic culture. And we attribute it to something that people are doing in China or they're doing in India or Korea or Taiwan. And it's really, I think, what they're importing is a class way of doing things. That is, in many ways, not all that different in kind from what the upper middle class kids and their families are doing in Cupertino. They want their kids to do well. They're figuring out what the best colleges are. They're getting tutoring, SAT prep. They're doing all of those things. It's just you have this population that's really selective that's doing more of it. Well, I think it goes to sort of... How do you define America, which is I know something that you talk, talk to these folks about, because um, for years, I mean, sort of that 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 idea of the immigrant and the hardworking um, and education gets you out of the ghetto kind of motto um, for years has been um, associated with immigrant populations. And um, and yet, you know, in East Palo Alto or Berryessa, were you finding that? Well, so East, uh, so in in Berryessa, you find a similar version of what's happening in Cupertino. It's just on a on a, um, a much smaller scale. I mean, in Berryessa, the the immigrants that are landing there are mostly from Vietnam, also some from India, and some from China. Um, and in in the AP classes, the the white kids are saying the same things that kids in Cupertino are saying across the board. Mm. Um, but there's a big Latino population in Berryessa also a small black population. And so the hierarchy gets kind of shuffled in a way that, that means that white kids don't fall to the bottom. Um, and and in, in East Palo Alto is kind of a, a funky place because they don't have a high school. And so when you think right. about mobility and you think about where inequality starts to solidify, um, we often think of high schools, although, I mean, early childhood, it, it goes all the way back even further, of course. But but East Palo Alto doesn't have its own high school. And so when I was doing my research there, East Palo Alto, the kids were getting bused to six different high schools. Right. And that's a legacy of a desegregation order from the 80s. Now they all go to one high school, which is Menlo Atherton. Tremendous segregation in, in Menlo Atherton High School. Based on the conversation thus far, you might get the sense that there's tons of conflict in Cupertino and that immigrants and the established populations are kind of going at it, and they're not. Um, in fact, they're not going at it in any of these three places. They, they actually exist fairly harmoniously. And I think one of the things that characterizes the experience of the people who are adjusting to the immigrant population is this tremendous ambivalence, the sense that they have lost something. So in the case of Cupertino, they've lost their standing in the schools. They lost their status, but that they've also gained something. And Denise, you mentioned it. But, you know, the the immigrant population, the children of immigrants, these are the established population's friends, their neighbors. In some cases, their romantic partners. There's a lot of intermarriage happening. And and so I think the ambivalence, the sense of gain and loss that, that is true of the immigrant experience is also true of the established population, the sense that that we are gaining something, but we're losing something. And, it, and, it's, and it's not as clear cut as a lot of people would want to make it to be. We will have more with Tomas Jimenez uh, back here on Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope next on SiriusXM Insight 121. 
Students focus on what they were told, not paying attention to the situation. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. So they're not going to see anything new because they're so busy trying to copy what you told them. From the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking today with Tomas Jimenez, sociology professor here at Stanford, about immigration and assimilation. So, Tomas, uh, the the picture you're portraying, at least in this community, uh, and, you know, the degree to generalize is, I bet you've thought about a lot, but that's not where I'm going. Uh, here it sounds like people sort of recognizing what's good and bad and accommodating, realizing this is the nature of life. You gain some things, you lose some things, and on a local level, it makes a lot of sense. So what, what fuels anti-immigration rhetoric, behavior? Is it someone who's trying to get a political advantage when it's actually not about the people who are on the front line experiencing immigration? Um, yes, I think there's some version of that. I mean, I, I think it's important to recognize that there there is a portion of the American population, and more particularly the American electorate, that, uh, that is anti-immigrant. And, and they have been, and uh, they are and always have been, and Donald Trump in particular was, was really good about tapping but, into that. But is, but, is this... Is this uh, attitude because of direct exposure to immigrants or is it just or lack it's, of exposure or it's, yeah. it's just they hear they only hear loss and they don't get experience gain is that sort of how this could happen i mean i think that's right uh i mean there's there's a kind of long-standing debate in social science about um whether about whether contact creates conflict between people or or whether over time there is there is some cooperation, there is some harmony that's results. And I actually think both things happen and, and that often the initial contact is quite conflict-ridden, but over time, as things kind of settle in, that there is a sense of accommodation. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm echoing theories of 100 years ago in many so, ways, but so, I don't think they're that far so, off. So, so let me force you to make a prediction. Go ahead. Uh, there, there are some parents in Cupertino who want to change the history books to talk about immigrants from their countries. Will the whites in the town fight back? Uh, this is a hypothetical, yes? It is a hypothetical. <laughs> um, it is a hypothetical. I mean, you know, you don't have to get so hypothetical. There's right. this, hap- this happened in Texas. Right. Um, right. Uh, yeah, I, I think they would. And in fact, if you go back 20 years ago in Cupertino, um, there was a big donation to one of the libraries by a wealthy Chinese immigrant. And there was a big backlash over the renaming of this library because oh, it was going to bear this yeah, person's yeah, name yeah. and he was called an outsider. But the outsiderness was supposedly because he didn't live in Cupertino. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think, sure, absolutely, you'd find a backlash. And I think that the way that that backlash would come about is in some ways reflective of what you see in American society. It is a kind of loud minority of people who... Um, who uh, are are perpetrating the backlash and uh, and making life um, really uncomfortable, sometimes physically uncomfortable for immigrants, and in many ways the rest of us who uh, who are not um, from a kind of recent immigrant um, heritage. It is in fact the case that a majority of Americans actually have pretty reasonable views about immigration in general. Americans want more border security, but they are also heavily in favor of a legalization program, not just for the so-called dreamers, but also for the larger 11.1 million uh, undocumented immigrant population. The majority of Americans thinks, think immigrants um, uh, are net contributors to the United States. Majority of Americans either want more immigration or the same amount of immigration. Um, and, and those numbers have actually gotten 
more accommodating, gone, gone in the more accommodating direction since 2016. And so it's very easy to get the impression that that the United States hates immigrants. And in many ways, our policies do kind of, ref- not kind of, they do reflect that. And, and they are going in a, in a direction that is much more um, aimed at keeping immigrants out, particularly immigrants of a certain sort, and, and being really punitive. But, but those policies don't reflect the will of the people. It is the case, though, that there is, this is not to discount that there are there are uh, people, a substantial portion of the electorate, a substantial proportion of the American population that is in favor of these policies, but the majority are not. So going back to Dan's tension to begin with, mm. I think that it's really tough on teachers and, and parents, too, um, on on what you're supposed to do in that case, right? On, on how we, we've got all these different kids in my class um, I want to honor their religion, their ethnicity, their language, and I'm also supposed to teach this story of America as a melting pot, or this history, or this, or this science that may go against certain people's beliefs. So, what, you know? Here, it, it seems as though the what what's happening is the Asians come and they're sort of competing within a system by the rules of the system. There's not an attempt to change the system, and they're just out-competing their white peers on the specific dimensions that that system values, like t- t- scoring. Is is that common, or because that that seems, uh, or is that is that a, a a typical immigrant strategy to Absolutely. do well in school? Um, yeah. Well, certainly to do well in school, but just the idea that immigrants come here and work extremely hard and outwork Americans, I think, is true up and down the the class ladder. So here we're talking about using a very conventional avenue of mobility. Um, But I I think you see it uh, in in the labor market. I think you see it in schools. Um, You know, immigrants, regardless of where they come from, are very highly selected. These are the most motivated people in the entire world. And so, uh, you you know, again, I I think it's a microcosm, but if you kind of focus in not on the specific task, but on the kind of characteristic of the immigrant and the characteristic relationship to the established population, you'll you'll see that kind of immigrants outgunning the native-born Interesting. everywhere. Interesting. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Tomas Jimenez about immigration and people's fears and, and worries and um, sort of where we are as a country, actually. Any tips about how to view, think, uh, respect, interpret? I mean, I, I think that this goes back to something we were talking about a second ago and and notions of changing the curriculum or, or them changing us or us changing them. And I, I think that there are different interpretations of, of what it means to be American and what it means to be inclusive, including in a classroom, and that the stories that immigrants and the children of immigrants bring with them I think can be very easily written into the American national narrative. And so I think that we're into a narrative of a classroom, what it means to belong in, in that microcosm of the United States. And so I think that the the kind of forced, the, the overly rehearsed idea or effort to try and be inclusive and call people, I actually think that you can go too far. And I think 
you know, this is, comes from a guy who's only ever taught college, mind you. <laughs> um, but, but I think inviting students to write their own story into a larger American story, and that can be done in literature, and, and there is a kind of inclusive literature that can be done through writing. It can be done in all kinds of ways. I think kind of strikes the balance, maybe, maybe gets us close to to uh, remedying that paradox that you opened with, which is people kind of hanging on to something that, that they have or having their own bright thread, but to carry forth the metaphor, weaving it into to something that is a, a, a larger whole. Very nice. Nicely Very done. Nice. Thank you so much, Tomas, for joining us. And thank all of you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app on iTunes and on SoundCloud. From the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope.